Hello everyone, I am Neil Pollack. I am the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. And you're listening to the Book and Film Globe podcast, our weekly rundown of all things in the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We have some great stuff for you this week. We're going to talk about a couple of new movies that are sure to get some attention come awards season. Awards season is approaching rapidly. Sarah Stewart will be here to talk about She Said, which is a movie about the journalists who uncovered the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault scandal for the New York Times. The movie should uh, appeal mostly to readers of the New York Times, but that is a lot of people, so it's worth talking about, and it's apparently quite good. We're also going to talk to Stephen Garrett about The Fablemans, the new Steven Spielberg semi-autobiographical film that is making its way gradually to cinemas near you. But first, we're going to talk to Sharon Vane, frequent contributor, about a debate going on about how children should learn how to read. We cover all aspects of the waterfront of books and film and streaming TV here, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart. I wanted to add, before we bring on Sharon, to talk about the Soul the Story podcast that uh, Sarah Stewart and I, during our discussion of She Said, couldn't remember who played Megan Kelly in the movie Bombshell, which she said somewhat resembles. And the answer is Charlize Theron. Two professional Rotten Tomatoes approved film critics could not remember the name of Charlize Theron, but we figured it out and now you know, and so do we. We'll be right back to talk to Sharon Bain about Soul the Story. From time to time on the podcast, we like to veer away from our regular diet of talking about movies and TV shows and discuss issues of importance, things that are in the news that are related to the subject matter on our site, uh, well, directly related in this case because we read an article about it, but aren't always exactly on the nose of our mission of talking about literature and books and film. In this case, Sharon Vane wrote an article about the Sold a Story podcast which uh, is an American public media production that has reignited a debate about the best way to teach kids how to read. And I find this um, topic very interesting as someone who likes reading. I don't really like kids, but I was once a kid who liked reading. So uh, it's near and dear to my heart. And Sharon is here today to talk to me about it. Hello. Hello. You know, uh, everybody needs to learn how to read at some point. So this topic has relevance to everyone, really. Yeah, you know, I'm surprised about where this came from. You know, this is basically like, this is a basically an NPR podcast. I mean, American public media is not NPR, but it's NPR style. And they come out uh, strongly on the side of sort of old school phonics education. Emily Hanford is the reporter. So I'm, I'm surprised at the battle lines that have been drawn here. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, about the controversy. Well, it's interesting to see some of these familiar arguments um, kind of coming back around again. Um, you know, I hesitate to draw such strong black and white lines because I don't think anybody is saying you can only learn to read through phonics or you can only learn to read through these more whole language or cueing methods, but definitely their instruction has kind of veered in cycles towards one side or the other. And Sold a Story really talks about how the focus for decades um, from 
those who teach teachers to the classroom, to uh, federal programs, has really been in this uh, kind of balanced literacy uh, worldview, which means instead of using phonics to sound out the letters and the words, you're using clues in the text, kind of more of a whole language, you know, what could that word be? I'm sort of trying to get more comprehension and then I learn to read sort of as a side benefit of getting what the stories are in these very simple books. The problem is, according to the podcast, that doesn't actually work for lots and lots of students who are falling behind. Right. The controversy, it wouldn't be a controversy if the method, if people, if reading scores hadn't been declining for decades, right? You know, if, the, uh, if this method were working, then no one would care. But people are reading less and reading less well uh, when they are reading. And so, um, you know, this this is definitely a problem. You know, does she uh, does she offer up any solutions? Does she talk about the old phonics-based method? Well, she does. And some of, I would really encourage our listeners, um, you know, who are listening to our podcast to really go and listen to six episode podcast, well worth your time, you know, to kind of dig into the, the details. But she talks about how um, a lot of parents and teachers realized as they were paying more attention to what was happening with their kids' education during shutdowns on Zoom, that, hey, you know, I thought my kid could read, but they're really struggling with this. And, you know, I'm being told by the teacher that it's working, it's working, but it's really not working. So you've got that contingent of parents, you've got a contingent of teachers who are feeling like we were trained to use these methods, you know, to kind of sideline phonics, uh, which was much more popular, you know, um, 20, 30 years ago. We, we were given these kind of almost Beyonce-like instructors to follow their methods, but as Hanford shows on the podcast, there's been a ton of research for years that shows a lot of students don't learn effectively this way, yet there were a lot of classes, a lot of instruction, and a big education mega publisher pushing this and making a ton of money off the whole idea that sidelining phonics in favor of blended literacy was the way to go, leaving behind these teachers and students. In your story, you point out that the people who founded this method are still going and they're still teaching, right? And they're, and they're making a lot of money and they're celebrities in a sense. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely education celebrities. Um, there's, uh, you know, a few people that Hanford focuses on, but one of the big ones is Lucy Calkins, who if you follow Edu Twitter at all or, you know, literacy instruction, I mean, she is just everywhere. She's sort of held up in many circles, not all circles, but in many circles as the be-all and end-all of, you know, the person who kind of revolutionized how to teach kids how to read. And it's interesting because Hanford has been trying to interview her for years. Maybe about a year ago, Lucy admits, you know, maybe we've sidelined phonics too much. We're going to revise my foundational curriculum that, you know, a a massive, like 40% of, you know, uh, elementary schools in the U.S. use. She says they're going to revise it. We're going to make some changes. 
Um, and she gets interviewed for the podcast and talks about how we're always learning new science. But then she comes out and signs a letter, an open letter that 58 academics and some authors signed kind of criticizing the Sold a Story podcast to say, oh, you're, you're putting us into these polarizing uh, camps. It's not phonics versus cueing. Everything's important and Sold a Story is selling the wrong story. So it's interesting to see the pushback there. And how did Hanford respond to that? I mean, you know, she was she spent years on this project, you know, meticulously, um, you know, chronicling this this change, this important change in in society that was happening, sort of under our noses. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about the podcast is how she explains these really complex topics, um, these complex methods of instruction, in really easy to understand language, um, and even you know, six episodes of a podcast is not enough to sort of show the breadth and depth of a reporter's background and reporting on the matter. So kind of initially when this letter first came out, she detailed and linked on Twitter to some of her other stories saying, I'm not saying that we should completely abandon queuing or that the only thing we're supposed to do is phonics. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to show how phonics has been sidelined. And that kind of sat out there for a couple of days. And then she retweeted the whole thread and, you know, said she appreciated the feedback and that she learned from it. And I thought it was actually a super gracious way of handling um, a lot of criticism that had come her way from, uh, from, from all, all corners. But it'll be interesting to see when the next round comes up because a group of teachers, classroom teachers, is working on their rebuttal to the open letter, hasn't dropped yet, but they they are all in on Sold the Story and they want to respond to this open letter from the academics. So we'll see more of that. Very interesting. I think we need to bring back the Hooked on Phonics late night infomercial from, uh, that, that I, I, I used to enjoy watch, watching the commercial. I don't know if really like, I cared about phonics. But I used to enjoy uh, the, the, them trying to sell Hooked on Phonics to me. So I want that back. I want Hooked on Phonics to come back. They are still selling it to homeschoolers because I actually came across it while I was researching the article. And I, too, had a little walk down memory lane of Hooked on Phonics. Hooked on Phonics. Going $39.99. Yeah, how did you learn how to read? You know, it's a great question. I don't have strong memories. I was an early reader and Hanford kind of talks about this. You know, there's some interesting uh, sub themes here of, you know, Lucy Calkins is, you know, a white, you know, woman in her seventies. And there's this line that Hanford pulls out of one of her kind of seminal texts about children are just naturally interested in the language around them. They see cereal boxes, they see this, they see that. They ask questions about the monograms on their bath towels, which obviously speaks to a certain amount of privilege. I did not have monograms on my bath towels, and I had, you know, a pretty solid middle class upbringing. Um, but I, I don't, I never remember not being able to read. And she talks about how a lot of times teachers, you know, they also found it really easy to read, and so it was easy for them to buy into this idea of we just need to infuse the magic of reading to these struggling students and they'll pick up the reading skills along the way. We just need to show them the 
show them the story and they'll figure out how to sound out these words and, and read for accuracy later. But the research shows that isn't true. I still don't have monograms on my bath towels. I, 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 why, why, would you want, so why would you want your initials on, on something you dry yourself with? I just remember, I remember there are photos, or at least there were once upon a time of me at age two or three sitting on, on the floor surrounded by the funny pages reading them. I don't really remember learning how to read. I don't even remember uh, my, how my son learned how to read. But, you know, there, there, that, uh, that, that method, I think, works um, in families that are like, you know, that we're reading is a priority, right? We're reading is a hobby or, or like an avocation or something. But I think that um, it's not necessary. Not everybody is surrounded by the printed word all the time, right? That's right. And, you know, some students, I mean, one method in any subject doesn't work for all students. So to focus so strongly on one delivery method, you know, I am not a teacher, but just as a lay person, it, it just sort of intuitively makes sense of some students might learn best this way. Other students may really need that strong phonics background. It's interesting to see how some of the teachers have responded to this podcast in this kind of horror of I have been led down the wrong path and I've done my students a disservice. Um, it's not like they're in, it's not like they're mem they're accidental members of Scientology or something. This is true. But you know, if you're going to become a kindergarten or first grade teacher, you probably do it because you love the young minds and you want to set them on the path for success. So. Or you do, or you just, you do it because you do it for the money, but don't understand that it, the value. I don't know. Yes, of course. No one becomes a kindergartner or first grade teacher for uh, for financial reasons. So, um, yeah. So, sold the story. Very fascinating debate that is out there right now, and uh, we covered it on Book and Film Globe. And you can listen to that podcast. Uh, but first, listen to our. Well, I guess if you're listening to this, you are listening to our podcast. You can when you're done, go over and listen to Sold the Story. Sharon, thanks so much for talking to me about it. Thank you. These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings. I can still see it, the hotel room, the floor plan. He kept trying to touch me. I asked him to leave me alone. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. I was young, scared. Hi. We're from the New York Times. I believe he used to work for Harvey Weinstein. It is quality movie season of films that are worth seeing but aren't doing very good box office. And right at the top of that list is She Said, which is a new film about the reporters from the New York Times who uncovered the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment and sexual assault scandal. And uh, it's getting really good reviews, including one this week on Book and Film Globe from Sarah Stewart, who is here with me now to discuss. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Yes, so She Said, um, you know, I, I, there aren't, it's not like it has a surprise ending. We all followed the saga, but uh, you know, you you made some had some interesting comments to make about sort of how it uh, both follows and subverts the uh, investigative journalism movie template. Yes, I well necessarily so. I think it's as you said, it's sort of an update on the uh, on the genre that we're all pretty familiar with at this point. Um, and, I, and I think part of that comes just from the modernity of their reporting. You know, Zoom meetings and interviews were not a thing back when all the president's men 
was being made. And it is just more satisfying to see someone typing on a typewriter and ripping the paper out dramatically than it is, you know, hitting a publish button on a screen. But that said, I, I really think that this movie both tackles a, a much weightier subject than that movie did. And also doing it quietly, I think, is the best possible treatment of the subject matter. There is no gratuitous uh, sort of reenactment of assault the way you might get in a lot of other movies about this subject. Uh, there's really only these two female reporters trying to track down these women who've been victimized by Harvey Weinstein and his network of enablers and trying to convince them to go on the record for the story. The only way these women are going to go on the record is if they all jump together. Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? Let's interrogate the whole system. Hi, my name is Jody Cantor. I'm an investigative reporter for The New York Times. What have you got? I was told that the wrongdoing in Hollywood is overwhelming. I don't want to be quoted, period. Understood. In your previous stories, how did you persuade women to tell you what had happened to them? A case I made was, I can't change what happened to you in the past, but together we may be able to help protect other people. The truth. Well, I mean, I would argue, I don't know if um, the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault scandal is weightier than Watergate, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly more modern and it, uh, you know, it affected, I don't know if it affected more people, but it, it, it's, 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 it's a different kind of story. Um, and I think the key here is that it was a story that, you know, it was a scandal that affected everyone, but largely affected women and women were the were the chief reporters on this and also the editors. And it just reflects a, a different kind of news business than the one that was depicted in all the president's men where, where, you know, Woodward and Bernstein were kind of, like you said, like typewriter jockey cowboys. Right. And here, right. You, here you have Michelle, uh, not Michelle Williams, uh, Carrie Mulligan. It's yeah. an easy mistake to make. And yeah. Zoe, Zoe Kazan, not D Zoe Deschanel, not as easy a mistake to make. Playing, uh, playing these real-life New York Times reporters who are, you know, still very much working and reporting for the New York Times, as, as far as I know. And, uh, you know, they are, you know, they, they sort of single-handedly broke open the greatest scandal of the Me Too era. And, you know, and it, I, I mean, I, I do plan to see it because I have a, uh, you know, I went to journalism school and I, I guess technically I'm a journalist and I, I just have an affinity for, uh, for movies uh, about reporters, you know, I, I you had some harsh things to say about all the president's men, but at the time, you know, it was such a, uh, you know, it was it was such a groundbreaking movie to like portray journalism in this heroic light, and and it inspired so many people to go into the profession, right? And Absolutely, so yes, and and there, I mean, there are so many, you know, if you are a writer, if you have been a journalist, uh, I, I think that you can't help but just be stirred by any of these movies. I mean, for me. You know, the list includes, um, it includes, well, Broadcast News isn't a newspaper movie, but it is definitely a media movie that I love. Uh, sure. The paper is one that's close to my heart, uh, as I was a reporter for a New York tabloid for a long time, and uh, that's kind of a love letter. That's more of a comedic love letter to, uh, to the New those York are, tabloid. Those are both great movies. Um, of course, Newsies. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Really captures, it, really captures what it was like to be a dancing uh, a New York paper boy on strike. 
uh, at, the, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and, and well, and this, you know, in Spotlight, which won the Oscar for Best Picture, um, it's a, that's a film about the Boston Globe undercover, uh, uncovering the, uh, the sexual abuse scandal at the heart of the Catholic church. And I was, that's a, that's a very, uh, a very good movie that I feel like maybe she said more closely resembles than all the presidents met. Yes. And I, I think that even just in revisiting the, the trailer for spotlight and remembering how amazing in a movie that is, I, I think it really did pave the way for this movie stylistically and also just thematically about uncovering a, a sort of network of, abuse and scandal that goes, you know, far beyond what anybody sort of thought was reasonable to have been covered up. Like if it was this endemic, how would nobody have known about it? Um, I do think that Spotlight does that a little bit more successfully than she said in terms of keeping the, the, the narrative drama uh, high all the time. Whereas I think she said just necessarily gets into a bit of a repetitive motion, especially towards the end where, you know, they, sometimes successfully get someone to talk and sometimes they don't and they're going back and forth with their editors and this I think is really how the story went um I don't know if this will appeal to everybody uh, I know that it appealed very strongly to me right and it, you know obviously anybody in journalism school will watch this with great interest and I'm sure the professors will there'll be field trips um you know but I, <laughs> what I think side uh, spotlight did is well it had a you know, for one of the first times that I can remember, it had a female investigative reporter character played by Rachel McAdams. And, you know, she was not, uh, you know, it was, this was a, not a character that was, you know, sexualized or you know, she didn't have, you know, she had a, a sort of a long suffering spouse and her boyfriend. And that wasn't really the focus. And as you point out in your review of She Said, they, the movie does the same thing with Megan Toohey and, and Jodie Cantor, who are the characters played by, uh, Kazan and Mulligan, right? They're not, you know, these are, these are married women who have spouses who support their crusade. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, we're so used to seeing men in the exact same situation in movies for, you know, from forever. So I think that it's still refreshing to see characters portrayed like that. And also I, I think it's interesting to see the, to the emotional toll that it takes on the two of these women who have all the support one could possibly have in your career of covering a story like this. And still both of them are just devastated by the end of it. And, you know, to imagine anybody without that amount of resources, um, you know, obviously points to why it was so easy a lot of the time for Weinstein and people like Weinstein to exploit so many people. Now you should probably, we should probably mention too, there, there, there was another sort of me too era movie bombshell, which came out, couple of years ago it was about the scandal at fox news yes yeah uh, that i actually that had a slightly poppier sensibility just because it was about tv right so and, yes. you know one of the characters is megan kelly who you know is is uh just a little bit more of a it's just a little bit more of a, a glamorous vibe um than the, this this one which kind of has a necessarily sort of grim newspapery tone right with with one of the most distracting accents ever from uh what, why am I blank? Was it Nicole Kidman who played uh, Megan Kelly? It was, I believe, it was Nicole Kidman. Well, uh, we're gonna we should really yeah. sort of, we should have looked that part up. Uh, yes, uh, no, no distracting accents in she said. Right, everyone's just kind of flat, flat and American. Um, yes, yes. The only possible distraction is just the, the sheer huskiness of Carrie Mulligan's voice, but I think that that can only be a good thing. 
we can, uh, at this point, she can trademark that. <laughs> she can, for sure. All right. Well, she said is not going to burn up the box office. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't think that, like, like you said, there's a sort of a limited appeal for certain journalism movies. Um, and also, you know, the subject matter is not some, it's maybe something people want to know about and read about, but maybe don't want to revisit in a film. But I think it's going to get a lot of attention when award season begins shortly. I agree. All right. Sarah Stewart, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Movies are dreams. That you never forget. This was a legendarily disastrous box office weekend for Thanksgiving. It was the worst Thanksgiving box office weekend of all time. Even worse than 2020 and 2021, which were the height of the pandemic. And this Thanksgiving was worse than that. And I mean, I don't know what, what's up with that. The studios didn't promote certain movies. Black Panther had been out for a couple of weeks and it didn't really, and it's not showing a lot of legs. And one of the major disappointments of the season, I guess, I, although I don't know if you really consider this thing a box office hopeful to begin with, was the new movie from Steven Spielberg, of all people. This is a film called The Fablemans, and it's a kind of a autobiographical uh, look, Bildungsroman, I guess, I don't know, look back at his boyhood, uh, his, his early days as a, as a youth and as a teenager, sort of an aspiring filmmaker. Um, and Stephen Garrett wrote about it for Book and Film Globe, and he's here to talk to me about The Fablemans. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Yeah, so I know I, I, I addressed this movie in kind of a gloomy way as a box office <laughs> but, but you know, you but it but it's not a uh, it's not a a bust of a movie. I mean, it's a successful film. You and you gave it you gave it five stars, which is as many stars as you can give a movie on Book and Film Globe. So you obviously had a lot of affection for it. I did, yeah. You know, I, I had low expectations going in. Uh, I, I'm not generally a big fan of Spielberg. I find him very problematic in a lot of his movies, and he's maudlin in certain ways, and he's schmaltzy in certain ways, and, you know, even when he's serious, he's almost self-serious and pretentious. You know, um, he, he certainly made some amazing movies, and he's also made some movies that are not at all amazing. Uh, so when I read that he was going to make an autobiographical film, I just thought, oh boy, this is going to be, this is going to be uh, difficult to get through. And, um, <clears throat> and then I heard it was going to be called The Fablemans, and I thought, geez, wow, okay, you're, you're really hitting the, <laughs> you're the right state. on the, yeah, yeah, yeah no, no subtlety in that title, The Fablemans, <laughs> like, oh boy. Uh, so I just, I was kind of down on it. I'm not big fans of, of Paul Dano's uh, acting style or you know, Seth Rogen in a serious film. And I don't know. I just, I looked at the casting and I just thought, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. Anyway, I, I went into it with, uh, I was lucky enough to see it early enough that there weren't reviews about it and there wasn't really any talk about it. So to finally see it, um, I was, oh, and it was two and a half hours. So I thought, oh boy, well, this is either going to be awful or amazing, you know, as some really long movies tend to be, uh, that they need, they earn the time that they, uh, that they take. And I, I, I was really uh, impressed and, and happy, mainly because I just thought this was going to look at the poster tag. It says capture every moment, which makes it sound like a big schmaltzy celebration of his wonderful introduction to movies. It's anything but, you know, it's not wonderful. It's full of fear and anxiety and tension and, 
revelations that kind of really affect his family and tear his family apart, not because of his filmmaking, but it, his filmmaking is witness to it. And I, I appreciated that it, it really was worth well. The lights change how everything looks. It's hard to find our house. Ours is the dark house with no lights. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. Yeah, it's kind of a, um, in some ways, like a Jewish immigrant kitchen sink drama. You know, there's some, there's some residual World War II trauma. There are, you know, there is a, there is a uh, elderly relative played by Judd Hirsch, um, who, who comes in for a scene to get his Oscar nomination, <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, yeah. he shows up, and you know, he sort of offers these kind of weird words of wisdom to yes. M. Fableman, and yeah, I mean. It is a, um, it's sort of a, you know, the screenplay was co-written by uh, Spielberg and Tony Kushner, uh, who, you know, who has written, worked with Spielberg on some of his movies, and he wrote Angels in America, and he's obviously, you know, a writer of note and a collaborator, and I felt a lot of the dialogue, I mean, some of it was a little, a little elevated, maybe, but a lot of it felt kind of real, and the, the acting felt pretty real and naturalistic, there were a lot of kids in the movie, and they were not wooden, you know, they, yeah. it was Spielberg, um, pulled whatever uh, tricks he used to get Henry Thomas to cry and E.T. on these kids, and they, they do it very well. And, you know, and I mean, that said, I didn't, you know, I didn't always love it. There was a lot of scenes of M Michelle Williams kind of whining in a Jewish accent and, like, <laughs> twirling around and being, like, this, you know, pixie, artistic pixie who is misplaced in a, in a marriage with, a, with an engineer and I, you know, in some ways that's kind of relatable, but, um, you know, I, I can, to some extent, that is a similar situation that I, I faced as a young, sensitive, artistic Jewish boy in Aaron suburban Phoenix. <laughs> that's the thing, is they moved from New Jersey to Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Spielberg's 25 years older than I am, or, or tw at least 20-something years older than I am, so... It's set in an earlier period of Phoenix, but I could recognize the sort of the desert setting and the neighborhoods. You know, he went to school in my school district, um, the old Kachina Theater that Scottsdale and Camelback plays a little, makes a little guest appearance in sort of an old school scene there. So, you know, there, there are certain Phoenixy things that I kind of liked and, and I could relate to. It's nostalgic, but it's not totally rose, you know, it's not like um, happy days nostalgic. No, no. It's not, and I think that's what I kind of reacted to. I was pleasantly surprised that it it, it didn't uh, have any whiff of that, really. I mean, it kind of did a little, you know. You were you know, like the the his his uh, adolescence, really, uh, and teenage years, a little bit in um, in Arizona, where they're riding the bikes. You know, you see these things that are very, very Spielbergian. You realize, of course, that's where. Of course, he was a Boy Scout. Of course, you know, he rode bikes with his friends around town. Of course, you know, they like had gawky interactions with girls like that stuff feels somewhat nostalgic but it, it you know to your point about you know being being jewish in in a in a pretty goyish uh state i i feel like that really doesn't become a plot uh point until they go to california right where he really does really kind of hard hittingly encounter uh, some serious anti-semitism with some high school classmates, right? Yeah, the irony being, and I found this as well, that they're actually 
is a sizable Jewish community in Phoenix, and there was when I was a kid too. Uh, I think Jews just like it where it's warm. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and Northern California is not warm. And he was like a stranger in a strange land in the Northern California climate. He runs it as an anti-Semitism. There's some bullying, you know. And of course, young Steven Spielberg, because let's face it, this is young Steven Spielberg, always manages to pull himself out of whatever pickle he's in through the magic of filmmaking, right? At the end, <laughs> at the end of the day, he's still an irrepressible genius with trauma attached. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, everyone, does he get himself out of a pickle, though? You know, like when, they, when he makes that movie of The Class Trip, like it's it's I, I that was impressed by that scene, too. And what happens, the fallout from it was kind of unexpected. And I thought that was really a wonderfully revealing uh, anecdote about the power of film and, and the the effect of storytelling on on young Spielberg, you know, that he, he doesn't tell the story that he would want to tell. He tells the story that's the best thing for the movie. You know, was, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. It was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if it was very compelling as storytelling to me, I mean, you know, look, you, you work in film for a living, you're a film critic, you know, your day job is in film. So of course, like there's a lot of Easter eggs in this movie for a guy like you and for a guy like me for that matter. So there's lots of things you can point at and look at, you know, I'm wondering, and a lot of the sort of older ladies in the audience, when I saw it, and I'm, I'm talking, as I'm talking to you, I saw, I, I just got out of it a few hours ago. I was in it for a few hours, believe me. Um, <laughs> Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half at least. Um, you know, they were kind of clucking with nostalgic pleasure. So I, I just don't feel like, you know, this this is an Oscar movie. This is not a movie that's going to have a lot of popular appeal. You know, it's going to be for Spielberg completists and people over the age of 60. That's who I feel like the fable is. <laughs> fable is for. I mean, it's just, it's. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, we, we you know, we live in a, a world right now where um, being Jewish is for some reason controversial again. I don't understand right. why. I thought we were done with that. But, you know, this movie does, does sort of address some of those things. And I, and I like that. I just, I just wonder how, how much of a, of a, a hearing it's going to get. That said, are we allowed, should we give spoilers about the final scene? Because I thought the last 10 minutes of this movie were incredible. You know? <laughs> I mean, I did too. I think it's interesting too. Like, how do you end this story, you know? And it so. Was Amazing. It was like it was like something out of a it was like something out of Tarantino. It was so you know, or <laughs> you know, it's like the, the the cameo that he chooses yeah. is just is incredible. I was just, I, went, I, I didn't even recognize who it was at first yeah. until he opened yeah. his mouth, and then I was like, "Holy shit! Oh, that's yeah. so great!" Yeah. And it was just yeah. the, and, and the writing was perfect, and the the, the sort of the interaction was perfect, and I, I left in a good mood, and I just kind of. I don't know, man. I just feel like the rest of the movie could have had a similar vibe and it would have been cooler. I mean, I think you're expecting uh, a different film from, from Spielberg. I don't think Spielberg is capable of doing something that unexpected. Or and how was he I mean, capable like, of doing that last 10 minutes? Because that was incredible. I was like, Because it's a real story. I mean, he's told that story, apparently, and he's used that voice. And, you know, it's, you know, again, we don't want to read reveal uh the the cameo necessarily but um i think he's said as much that 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 person really nails that accent and uh does that i mean it's it's basically it's one of those great anecdotes i i think for me this whole movie seems to feel like one very polished 
anecdote after another that he's probably told his entire life, either to families or, or members or friends or what have you. And Tony Kushner was probably like, you know what, this is this is our ending because we don't really have an ending. You right. know, it's that, kind of that, like that scene was great, and the scene where he gets together with his girlfriend for the first time in her bedroom was yeah, so extremely good and extremely entertaining. And, you know, had a little bit of a weird twinge to it that, like, Spielberg movies don't often have. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So and, I, and maybe that's what actually happened to him as well, which, you know, both those stories were probably the most confessional or the most genuine out of all the others, where maybe the others were a little bit more myth-making. I, I feel like, you know, like him finding, uh, the, the discovering the, um, you know, the, the roots of why his parents eventually divorce, you know, the fact that he's, it's almost like in this blow-up type scene where he's, he's seeing it in the film, right? Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I wonder how much that might be true because it is so unlike him to be so gripping in terms of his storytelling about yeah. something like that. You know, it's pretty raw for him, who is not necessarily. So there's, a lot, as, there's a lot of raw emotion, but you know what? I, maybe it's just me, but like what I was drawn to were the weird scenes that yeah. were, were so weird that they had to almost have happened. I agree. Look, I mean, Spielberg is a square guy. He makes square movies for the most part. They're not weird, you know? I mean, the you know, last, like... Well, the last shot was square. The last shot was so square. Exactly. I mean, you have this amazing... That was the only caveat I would say. That's the only thing I would amend your, your rave on that last 10 minutes, which is amazing. And then it gets square at the very last second, you know? And you're just like, of course it does that. Because like the ending you can't, of you can't resist it. He like can't the, help the himself. AI, right? Where he's like the, the robot boys praying to the blue fairy to make him be a real boy. And you're like, oh my God, he's going to be trapped down there in the deep forever. <laughs> and then the aliens rescue him and give him he's, one perfect day. Spielberg is, I think the movie kind of shows this. And I, I you know, like, look, my, thankfully my parents never divorced, but uh, it is one of those truisms that is told again and again that, you know, children who suffer through their parents divorcing tend to be people who are not only scarred, but also feel like they need to make their parents happy or entertain them or what have you. So, you know, I, one could say the same of Spielberg, that if he came from a broken home, part of the reason he is so aggressively entertaining, so obsessed with making movies that entertain people and make them laugh and reassure them in certain ways, it's, it's maybe that impulse, you know in my very, very crude armchair psychology. Um, but also, he is drawn to the darkness. Tell me more about your relationship with your mother, Steve. <laughs> I know, exactly. No, but I mean, but also, you know, having seen the dark side of people or, or have the, the, his happiness of home life punctured like that, you know, he does, he is drawn to darker elements that are, keep popping up in his movies. And I think this is what's interesting about this movie is that it kind of reveals the roots of that, you know, that tension where I want to be an aggressive entertainer, but I also am kind of attracted to the darker side of things, but not so dark that I won't entertain you. And, you know, it's kind of like that last little bit is almost like a quick little tap dance after he shows you something really weird and wonderful, but it's like he doesn't trust himself to be completely weird, which is ironic considering the cameo is, yeah. you know, as people will discover a director who is one of the most wonderfully weird people who embraces the darkness and weirdness of life. I would never show a tap dance unless it was followed by something extremely weird. All right, well, Steven <laughs> Spielberg phones home 
in the Fablemans, and uh, and it is in in theaters now, and probably won't be for long, and then we'll be on a streaming service or two. Um, give it a shot. It's going to be nominated for um, many Academy Awards and other awards. So if you're a completist in that way, you should check it out. And uh, that's it, Stephen. Um, the magic of of cinema awaits you next week. Absolutely, as it always does. Thank God. All right. Thanks, Stephen Garrett. The Fablelands is in movie theaters now. The magic of cinema, the wonder of filmmaking, brought to you live. Not live. Brought to you by Steven Spielberg, who always is trying to get us to experience wonder, childlike wonder. I don't know if I'm capable of that anymore, but I can at least, uh, at least watch a Steven Spielberg movie every now and then. Also, thanks to Sarah Stewart for talking to me about She Said, the new movie about the New York Times reporters who uncovered the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault scandal, and to Sharon Vane for stopping by to talk to me about the Soul to Story podcast and the debate over how you should teach children to read. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Please check the site out. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm going to go read now, not using phonics, and I'll talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. The Bookhouse Milburn.com. <laughs>